I do want to encourage you uh, to continue to pray for uh, the Hillside Inn. Um, next week, uh, we'll have Carrie share a little bit more about that ministry uh, to uh, young people in our community who are needing a home through transitions in their life. Uh, often, they are children who are uh, children and family uh, of, of believing families, sometimes going through uh, their own renewal in their faith and asking questions even as they uh, look to uh, establish themselves. And so uh, an interesting and important ministry in our community, one that Carrie is uh, intimately involved in uh, as an innkeeper, they call her. And so uh, this plays into our sermon uh, in, a, in an important and significant way, is that as we, we see the kingdom of God, everybody is significant. And this revolution that God is bringing by the Holy Spirit is one in which those who were seen to be far off, those who had seen to be uh, discarded uh, by time and history, by chance uh, and by uh, physical reasons, we see them continually brought into the kingdom. A couple of weeks ago, uh, we saw the brilliance of the way in which uh, God brought the deacons into existence as a way of making sure that even within the Jewish community, that those who came from different regions and backgrounds were brought in and cared for equally, uh, that the leaders were from both the Hellenistic and the Judean uh, Jewish uh, communities, that he was bringing restoration between those groups that sometimes uh, had not had easy relationships, and he's restoring the richness of that community. Then we saw under the pressure of persecution that uh, the disciples uh, stay in Jerusalem, but many of the um, dis disciples are distributed uh, throughout the region. And we're following uh, this man, Philip, who's a deacon. And uh, we saw last week that God used him to uh, reconnect with the Samaritans. We know that Jesus ministered to the woman at the well. We know that that village received him well and uh, that many were converted. And now that ministry continues and Philip uh, preaches and the Lord blesses and we see that group which was racially distinct and sort of quasi-Jewish brought back into the fold and God brings those people who in some places he had even uh, warned judgment against them are brought back into the fold and the kingdom of God extends. This morning we continue to see God stretch the boundaries of his kingdom and his community and the implications uh, for what it means for those who are even further off than just Samaria and perhaps even uh, physically and uh, emotionally a lot further off than uh, the Samaritans were. This is the great story of Philip and the Ethiopian. So let's put the text in front of us. This is uh, Acts chapter 8, 26 and following. Hear now God's word. Now the angel of the Lord said to Philip, Go south to the road, the desert road, that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. So he started out, and on his way he met an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in charge of all the treasury of Candace, the queen of the Ethiopians. The man, was gone, uh, the man had gone to Jerusalem to worship and on his way home was sitting in, a chariot, in his chariot reading the book of Isaiah the prophet. The spirit told Philip, go to the chariot and stay near it. Then Philip ran up to the chariot 
and heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. Do you understand what you were reading? Philip asked. How can I, he said, unless someone explains it to me? So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. The eunuch was reading this passage of Scripture. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter, and the lamb before his shearers is silent. So he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. The eunuch asked Philip, Tell me, please, who is the prophet talking about, himself or someone else? Then Philip began from this very passage of Scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. As they traveled along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, Look, here is water. Why shouldn't I be baptized? And he gave orders to stop the chariot. Then both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and Philip baptized him. When they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away, and the eunuch did not see him again. But they went on, uh, but went on his way rejoicing. Philip, however, appeared to uh, Azut. Oh, for Pete's sakes. I practice this and then I butcher it. And traveled about preaching the gospel in the towns until he reached Caesarea. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Heavenly Father, we are grateful that your word is not dependent upon the messenger or the reader. But Lord, it is alive, sharper than to any two-edged sword. And we pray that even now it would rearrange us into a pleasing offering. Lord, we ask that your word would transform us. And whatever is said this morning that is not true, that is not useful for the building up of your people, would those quickly be forgotten? Would you guard your people? We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, so we've all seen those pictures uh, in churches where got the missionary board, and you have these wonderful pictures of this diversity of uh, backgrounds and, and, uh, and races. And uh, we love to celebrate the promise of every nation, every tribe, every tongue. And there is something wonderful then about seeing this passage where God brings in Philip this opportunity to see the gospel go into the heart of Africa, or at least the heart of the horn of Africa, to begin the work of the kingdom. And we know <coughs> that God is going to greatly bless his church through these works. The doctrine of the Trinity comes from North Africa. Augustine, one of the great saints that we anchor our reformed understanding of many of the great doctrines, is a man from North Africa. We owe much to Philip's work, to the spread of the gospel, and why in this season and this time, North Africa and much of Africa, uh, North particularly, is no longer Christian, is, is, is lost in our minds. But we pray for our brothers and sisters. We are grateful for its heritage, and we are grateful recipients for its wisdom. This is a passage where we see God doing two great things. God, a God of pursuit. A God who pursues 
the other. And we see a God of healing, a God who restores that which was broken, that which was uh, needing healing both emotionally and spiritually. So let's look uh, this morning at first the pursuit of God. Uh, The first thing we see is that God is pursuing this man of status. He is at least a God-fearer. That's about all he can be. He's got the Word of God and he's reading it. And so there's a way in which, again, we were talking this morning in our Sunday school about the fact that at CVP, we believe that one of the guardrails that sort of keeps us moving in the direction towards Christ-likeness is providence. We believe in the providence of God. We do not believe that God is absent from His creation and that He orchestrates meetings and He orchestrates the times and the places. And it is no small thing that this man had the Word of God and was returning from Jerusalem. The Lord had been present and pressing upon him. He did not know Jesus yet. That had to be revealed by Philip. Uh, The Holy Spirit uses that means. But God is providentially engaged in preparing the hearts of this man for the coming of the gospel. God is a God who pursues. He is not away from us, hoping that things happen, hoping that people run into each other. When, he, when Jesus says, how will they hear if no one goes, that doesn't mean that he's not preparing the way ahead of them. It is an opportunity for us to participate, to be a part of the kingdom of God coming, a part of the proclamation of the gospel. But Jesus is in no way describing a limitation that somehow he is not able to pursue his people from every tribe, every nation, every tongue until one of us goes. It's no less than the opportunity to be missionaries, but we have to recognize that the reason the gospel is received by the Ethiopian in no small degree is that the Lord was already with him, pressing upon him, pursuing him. The great hound of heaven, Edwards would say. He was already working in this man's life. What he needed was the gospel. What he needed was the understanding of how this great bridge that he felt, which we'll talk about in a minute, he felt the distance between him and God in a way that you and I can scarcely imagine. He knew the separation. And yet he was being pursued. The word of God present in this man's life is bringing a fire bringing a longing, bringing a desire. I don't know if you've turned uh, in your past. I encourage you to to move to uh, Isaiah. There's two great passages that we'll look at here. But the passage in Isaiah that he's reading, that he's meditating on, is from Isaiah 53, verses 7 through 8. Uh, It says uh, this, He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to slaughter, and as a sheep before his shearers is silent. So he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment was he taken away. He was taken from his generation. He was cut off from the land of the living. The transgressions of my people, he was stricken. God is laying upon this man's heart this heavy reality. How is this addressed? What's his response? As he wrestles with God's truth, he wants to know, is he speaking, is the author speaking about himself or someone else? 
Because Ethiopian eunuch knows a little bit about the fact that people can suffer that way all the time. He probably sees it. It was not uncommon for people to be made an example of. The Romans crucified people on a regular basis so they didn't have to kill everybody. It's a way to keep people calm. You strip one of the leaders naked. You embarrass them. You say, this is what will happen to all of your people if you don't get in line. This is not unique with the Romans. And yet, there's a redemptive strain in Isaiah which was different than simply using somebody as an example, making an example to keep the Pax Romana or the people in check. There's redemption in Isaiah's words. And he wants to know, what is the difference between what Isaiah is talking about? Is it him or is it someone else? So God pursues us first through his word, at least in this text, preparing the hearts that God's word is used. It does not return void. It is sent out in written and spoken form. And the Ethiopian eunuch's heart is prepared. But he also sends Philip. Now Philip is sent out for the second time. Philip has got a lot of uh, active uh, engagement here before Paul's uh, conversion. And Philip is now sent by the Spirit. There's wonderful uh, a sermon that could be preached just on what does it mean to listen to the Lord sending us, right? I can just imagine that still small voice that encourages me in certain ways. And my first question is why? Lord, why do you want me to go? Tell me why. If it'll be useful, I'll go. We always negotiate to some degree with the Lord's leading. Uh, that we want more information, I do, uh, than I often receive, whether it's an ex exhortation from Scripture or one of my brothers and sisters or just an opportunity that I see laying in front of me and I wonder if I have the time or the resources to take care of it. And Philip's response here is to go. The Lord sends him and he goes. And he goes at a time of day when there would be very few on the road and it's hot uh, some of the texts indicate that it was probably close to noon, uh, which would be rather unpleasant on the desert road. And he walks alongside and he begins to hear the word read and he engages. He engages. And he helps unpack what God's word is saying. And so as much as God pursues and does through the word and through the leading of the spirit, uh, as we see in the, the eunuch's life, he also sends us. We are important. We do have an opportunity and a calling to be those who can give an answer for the hope that is within us. To look for those opportunities where someone is wrestling with the truth of the gospel. It may not be reading the text exactly, but are our ears attuned to the questions and the needs that open the door for the gospel, that the Lord may use us in answering and encouraging the hope of the gospel in a person's life. Again, Philip knew there he was on purpose there to share the gospel. He didn't know who, he didn't know exactly how. But should that be a unique calling for Philip? Do we need to hear God say, go talk to the guy in the chariot? before my heart and my mind is prepared and expecting for an opportunity to share the gospel, whether it's encouraging in the life of a believer or whether it is sharing for the first time one who does not know the goodness of Jesus or why the kingdom of God is alive and is flourishing. 
how we can have joy and hope in the midst of difficulty. We pray for the sister church down in paradise for no small reason that it's going to be an opportunity to share the hope of the gospel in the midst of what appears to be the loss of everything. How do the believers respond in those moments as people read their times and read the difficulties? We pray for our brothers and sisters they might have ears to hear opportunities to speak the goodness of the gospel even in the heat of the day on a desert road. God pursues his people and he pursues them by sending us to be next to them, to not leave them alone, but to give them someone who can explain, who can listen, who can encourage. I don't believe it's a unique calling. This is the interesting thing about the Philip text, which could throw all kinds of things into conundrums. But again, he's not one of the 12, but he's baptizing, but he's sharing the gospel. He is effective in those things. There's a way in which sometimes our categories can become too limiting. We want to know what everybody's job is. We want to know what our role is. And I'm not that person. I'm a person who stays behind the scenes. Well, behind the scenes, there are people who need the gospel. There are people out in front on the stage who need the gospel. There are people swinging the lights who need the gospel. I don't know how, whatever analogy you want to use about life and the rhythms thereof and your calling and my calling. No, we're not all called to be Billy Graham, but isn't maybe Billy Graham a way that we avoid our own evangelistic requirements to be ones who share the truth of God? Since I can't be Billy, I must not be an evangelist. We've seen Philip preach to an entire village and now we see Philip preaching to one man. And he simply points to the goodness of the gospel. And most of us know that Jesus was humiliated for us, that he bore our sins, that the darkness that any one of our friends or acquaintances might know is a darkness that God can and will pursue them into and bring light. And if you and I can be the means of assuring them that there is no place too dark, there is no land too distant, where the hope of the gospel cannot bring light and life, So we have a God who pursues through his word and through his people. But then we have a God who heals. Again, the passage here is, is, uh, is amazing. Uh, just the, the fun to study all the Old Testament texts would be uh, a wonderful distraction in and of itself. But a couple of key passages. First of all, Deuteronomy 23.1. There is no admittance into the assembly for a eunuch. The mutilation of the body in this way is clear in Scripture, does not allow one to enter into the temple. We know from uh, the rules about being a God-seeker or a proselyte, you couldn't become somebody who was officially in the process of becoming Jewish in the first century if you were a eunuch. This is a man who went to Jerusalem and was not allowed to even get into the court of the Gentiles, which we know was usually filled with people buying and selling doves. So not only he couldn't even get in to the court of the Gentiles, everything this man desired as he came to Jerusalem to know God, all he experienced was one barrier after another because 
of what had happened to him, because of what he'd given up for his career, because of what he'd had taken from him because his career was forced upon him. We don't always know. Not everybody who became a eunuch did so willingly. Some were simply raised to be those who fulfilled certain roles within a palace and within a government. Deuteronomy 23.1, he couldn't even get in. At best, this man could be categorized as a God-fearer, but he had no access to the temple, no access to God. But then, if you still have your Bibles open to Isaiah, turn a page or two over to Isaiah 56, another passage that he must have read that certainly Philip would have pointed him to and that all the scholars say is part of the answer, part of the hope that this eunuch would have had. Uh, It's chapter 56, verses 3 uh, through 5 in particular. Uh, Isaiah says this, Let no foreigner who has bound himself to the Lord say, The Lord will surely exclude me from his people. See, sometimes we need to be careful about reading certain texts like Deuteronomy without remembering that some of those things were meant to teach us a lesson and yet what God does as quickly as he says, no, you cannot come into my presence if you have been marred, if you have been uh, transformed, I built you a certain way and yet I will restore this. In Isaiah He is saying, here's the answer to Deuteronomy 23. It is true. There is a reality. And yet I will not let that reality ultimately keep me away from you. I will pursue you. So he says, look, foreigner bound to the Lord, don't don't say the Lord will exclude you. Do not let the eunuch complain, I am only a dry tree. I have no future, no ability to extend my family, no hope of children. For this is what the Lord says. To the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, my rests, who choose what pleases me and hold fast to my covenant, to them I will give within my temple and its walls a memorial and a name inside the temple. How can this be? I will give them an everlasting name that will not be cut off. Now again, Philip is far brighter than I am. So he would paint this picture of who Jesus is and then just imagine. The eunuch didn't already know this passage because he studied it. Philip bringing it to his attention and realizing, you, brother, you the eunuch, you are now a stone in the living temple. It's better than you could possibly imagine. You don't have to get into some building in Jerusalem anymore. In fact, that whole building is no longer important because what has happened is that the cornerstone 
that was rejected by the builders has become the capstone and we are all now being built into a new temple of living stones. You are not only just allowed to come into the basic idea of Jerusalem, you're not left out in the court of the Gentiles, you are now actually a part of the building itself in which God dwells. You are a dwelling place for the creator of the universe. You are a dwelling place for God himself. Your name, your name, and we'll get to know his name at some point. On one of the foundational courses of this new temple, just imagine if you know how blocks are laid, right? This is a man who for all of what appeared to be Jewish history would have been someone left on the outside with very little access, if any, now becomes one of the first courses in that new foundation laid. His name. You know, you walk around and you go to a, a, a place where somebody has bought a brick that's a part of a new building or in a park, and it's like, there's Frank and John's, uh, you know, brick. It's got their name on it. There's a reality in which our being, our names uniquely become a part of that new building, the new temple, the living temple. Your names are ascribed forever in the place where God dwells because you are the place where God dwells. And we come together as those who are living stones in a temple that becomes visible about the accessibility of God. That which seemed to be a bridge too far, a gap too wide, has been brought in Christ to closeness, to fellowship, to intimacy. The temple he could not enter has been replaced with a living temple in which he is a living stone, his name on a stone of the first generation of the church for all eternity. Can you imagine that he would have any other response but there's water, can I be baptized? The hope and the restoration and his response is, can I be baptized? Now again, this in and of itself is miraculous, right? Because technically, you wouldn't circumcise a eunuch. Because part of what circumcision was about was about God providing the next generation of children to be covenantally faithful. It was a part of generational covenantal succession. All pointing to the seed, the great one, Christ himself. You wouldn't do it. He couldn't receive the sign of the covenant. And now, in the new covenant, under Christ, he is baptized. He gets the full rights, full presence, full blessing. There are no second-class citizens in the kingdom of God. What a miraculous statement. There are not series of courts for the women. There's not a court for the Gentiles. There's not a court for the men. There is one temple, one living temple, and all stand in the presence of God. And how was it achieved it was achieved by a God who was willing to take all of that shame and brokenness to be stripped bare, to become a curse for his people. Imagine how that undermined everything the Ethiopian knew about power, about how a kingdom functions. And he takes that back to Ethiopia and he plants a church that exists to this day. Now we have some theological differences. The kingdom of God is there 2,000 years later. 
the man sent back to speak about a living temple that made a eunuch a part of an eternal life and a part of seeing a family explode. His children, the eunuch's children, are alive today in the church of Ethiopia. Living stones. This is our God who takes that which has been mangled for a functional purpose, can be discarded at a whim, and turns them into a whole person who has a legacy and a blessing in Christ. A couple of questions that we contemplate perhaps as we wrap up. What makes you feel scarred and unwhole? What makes you feel spiritually or physically where you identify with the eunuch? One who is a dried twig, incomplete, somehow not alive, not whole. Spiritually, physically, emotionally, what makes you feel unwhole and unnamed? Bring it back to Scripture. Bring it to your brother and sister to help them explain it to you. If you stay isolated and alone, if you stay away from the Word and stay away from the brothers, if the shame or the difficulty, whatever it is, whatever lie that is telling you that because of this, you are not a full member. If, and if people knew this about you, you would be less accepted within the body. The story of the eunuch tells us that God brings life to all of us through his word and through being open to listening to the good news of the gospel. Do you know somebody who is or feels not whole damaged goods. I'd encourage you even this day when you come to the Lord's Supper, bring them with you. In your mind and your heart and your prayers that they might know the wholeness emotionally, physically, spiritually that comes from being a part of a living temple made whole with a legacy. Not forgotten but pursued. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you be merciful to the preaching of your word. We thank you that you take all of us and make us whole in Christ. Lord, some of that will be completed in glory, but, but it's already true because we're made whole in you. We pray that the reality of that changed heart, the reality that we are robed in the righteousness of Christ may, might make us those beautiful stones alive, a temple out in and through the world that we might, like Philip, know the good news of sharing the gospel and to see the richness of people respond, saying, what would keep me then from accepting that grace? Lord, there is nothing. May they know that soon and may many be gathered because of the goodness of who you are. In Christ's name, amen.